Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, this Ember Friday of Lent, we are once again in the midst of the Ember Days. These, uh, yeah, these these uh, three days which occur four times throughout the year, the turning of the seasons, to make an atonement, uh, to offer really in, in penance for our faults and failures of the previous season, the, the preceding three months, and to consecrate the new season to the Lord. Uh, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing the way that time passes. It just always, it always uh, causes me to wonder and to marvel. It's amazing we're already here in the midst of Lent, the first week of Lent. And uh, Lent is long, you guys. <laughs> I was just realizing, or I was, this was occurring to me yesterday when uh, I was, what was I tempted to do? I don't know, have some kind of a snack or something, and I realized, gosh, we're only 10 days in to Lent, and there are many long weeks to go. But in that, I suppose we feel a bit like the hobbits and the rest of the the fellowship, uh, facing the long road to Mordor ahead of them with uh, only the hope of the glimmer of hope of their success, you know, to carry them along. So here we are, we're still at the beginning of our Lenten journey. And uh, gosh, it's a very cold day here in Eugene too. I'm out walking around and uh, I'm just wearing a very light jacket. (laughs) I'm wearing this sort of windbreaker that I would wear if I were back in California. And really, I should have worn a jacket about three times heavier than this. <laughs> it's a cold morning, it's wet, it's not raining right now, but everything is wet. There are puddles and mud all along the side of the road. But for all that, it is beautiful. The sky is gray and pale blue and uh, looks like it might start raining at any moment. But uh, it's bright, and everything, as I believe I've mentioned before, everything has that special quality of uh, vibrancy that comes from being damp. Oregon really looks best right after the rain. (laughs) Even the roads look best after the rain. So, despite the cold, I am enjoying being out for a little walk this morning. I'm just walking around my own neighborhood here in Eugene. I'm gonna try to stick to some quieter streets though and uh, do my best to avoid the busy thoroughfares. So, let's see. Yes, I'm recording this on Friday rather than Saturday because tomorrow we have our first meeting of the Melchizedek Project, our first session, uh, which you will recall I've been talking about for some weeks. We've been promoting it and pretty aggressively promoting it and uh, you know been 
sharing it out on, on social media and getting other priests in the area to scout out possible candidates and invite them and, and then inviting people directly. And uh, all told, the results of our efforts cooperating with God's grace, calling people to, uh, to himself, have paid off. We have eight participants signed up for tomorrow with one more on the docket for next month. He won't be able to come to the first session, but he uh, has gone ahead and registered and plans to come in March. So it's a great group. It's, uh, it's uh, very heartening to see that there's this level of response. And they come from all over the vicariate. They're not just coming from our parish. There are a few coming from the Ukrainian church over in Springfield, which is interesting. The Ukrainian Catholic Church, Nativity. And then some uh, other parishes around Eugene. There's, I think, one from St. Paul, several from St. Alice, which is where Father, the indefatigable Father Mark, <laughs> our uh, housemate, is pastor. And uh, yeah, various other parishes as well. In fact, now that I think of it, I don't know if a single one of these eight actually comes from St. Mary's. One or two of them attend Mass at St. Mary's. But I don't think they're actually formally our parishioners which is interesting. Hopefully some more of our people will join because guys can continue to join as the project goes on. There's no obligation to have attended prior sessions. So registrations will be open for each session and you know they can jump in later if they choose. But still to have eight at the outset is great news. And um, yeah, I've been confirming with them all this week. It's, it works much better to have the online registrations and to have a, a definite registration period that closes at a certain day, you know, because then you can collect everybody's information ahead of time and then you have a roster and then uh, like ours closed last Saturday. So this week I've just been reaching out to them individually, thanking them for signing up, answering their questions, confirming that they're going to be there. I'm going to text them all tonight and remind them of the time tomorrow. So, um, yeah, this has been a good lesson for me of just like how to plan an event like this and uh, just some best practices to carry on into the future. So we never have a repeat of what happened last month where you just have some kind of wishy-washy, you know, maybe, you know, I'd like to come, it's not a good idea, you plan the whole thing and then no one shows up. So I'm confident that these guys are going to come tomorrow. We have a good morning planned for them. We'll have breakfast and... You know, we'll have prayer together. We'll have a game. I have this, I have the game. <laughs> Someone ordered this game for me. It's called the Catholic card game. It's kind of like apples to apples, but with just Catholic stuff. <laughs> so I've never tried it. We're going to try it out tomorrow. And then, yeah, we'll have our some teaching, small group discussion. There'll be a holy hour with the rosary. So it'll be very good. So please keep them in your prayers. Uh, tomorrow, Saturday the 27th, the first meeting. What else is going on? I have my seminarian pastoral year committee meeting this afternoon. Uh, we've been meeting once a month, more or less, since the fall. Not much to talk about this month. Um, actually, I thought about just canceling the meeting, but I think it'll be good to have it. So I'll just kind of give them my report, update on what I've been working on, and then ask them if they have any feedback. Um, but not too much really has changed since our last meeting in February. 
the hospital ministry, which I was planning to get started on with Father Joseph, the chaplain over there at Sacred Heart Hospital, that is kind of on hold. Hasn't really started yet. In fact, it hasn't started at all <laughs> yet. And the reason, of course, is COVID. Um, which when I heard from the Archdiocese that they wanted us to get more hospital ministry this year, while I understand, and I definitely agree, it's, you know, it's essential, and uh, we need that experience, you know, I thought, what hospital <laughs> is going to allow us to come in and, you know, interact with people? They're trying to minimize that to the, you know, the absolute minimum of people coming in and out they possibly can. And sure enough, Sacred Heart Hospital here in Eugene is no exception to that expectation. So, um, you know, the chaplain has been asking the pastoral care people and whomever is in charge um, about my coming over, but they've been very reluctant. And so I met with Father Joseph a, a couple of weeks ago now and haven't heard anything new since. But at that meeting, what I heard is that, uh, yeah, they were expecting maybe, maybe in the spring, more likely in the summer, they might be able to have something for me, but in the meantime, uh, yeah, there's not, not much chance of my getting in there because I'd have to be classified as a volunteer because I wouldn't be formally under a CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education Program. So they would just put me as a volunteer, but they're not having any volunteers right now <laughs> because of COVID. <laughs> so do you see, there's that, therein lies the crux of the problem. <laughs> And then even if I were to be allowed in, they don't allow volunteers to just go around visiting people. So a loophole they're looking into is whether they can have me classified as clergy. If they get me on a clergy you know, classification, then that would be different because they are allowing clergy to come in, not to the COVID patients. Only Father Joseph sees them. So outside clergy don't visit them. But clergy in general are getting in and you know, they have allowed me in before under the presumption that I was a clergyman because I went wearing my clerics. <laughs> so I don't know. If they can get me in in that classification, then there's a chance I might be able to, you know, go around making the rounds, visiting patients and doing these other things that the Archdiocese wants us to do. But even so, um, yeah, there's just some some logistical issues to work out there. So... We will see what uh, Father Joseph and the hospital admin people come up with in the next few weeks or months, but uh, so far no progress. But um, yeah, other, other projects are coming along. I've been teaching in the school, teaching in the RCA. We had the right of election this last Sunday, which was great. It was such a joy. I don't think I've ever been to one before. I didn't have to go through these rites when I came into the church because I was in a unique kind of a situation where I went to some RCIA classes, but I was also, I was a teenager. They put me in the confirmation program and pretty much I followed the confirmation, um, you know, steps with the, uh, with my peers. Uh, but the rite of election was very nice on Sunday. And uh, yeah, it was just a joy to my heart to see this one man who I am sponsoring, his name is Michael, uh, you know, make his, his uh, f formal step into the, the, the ranks of the elect and to see all these others who we've been teaching and working with, uh, yeah, take one step closer. 
they're now formally on track to be received into the church at Easter to receive the sacraments. And they asked Father Ron, as the vicar of Archbishop Sample, uh, you know, publicly to receive those sacraments of initiation. So great, great joy for all of us who have been teaching them. And let's see, what else? So Exodus is coming along. As I say, we're (laughs) 10 days in and, oh man, there's many weeks left to go. But, you know, it has been a joy. Really, it has. Although there are moments of uh, difficulty and of temptation. Overall, it's been such a good experience already. And uh, we had our first weekly fraternity meeting on Tuesday, just before our Bible study Tuesday morning. And uh, that was very good. It's just uh, such a blessing to undertake a, I wouldn't say a project, but a set of disciplines and practices like this, which are difficult, but as part of a group, and you're all striving together, and all of us shared some variation of the same experience of, you know, being tempted to cheat a little or fudge a little on this or that, or, you know, kind of stray from the path, but recognizing that because these other guys are following the same commitments, we therefore um, were able to hold ourselves to the higher standard and not to yield, which is, that's the gift of fraternity. That's one of the gifts of fraternity. So that's been good. And the Bible study has really been such a gift as well. This last week, uh, we're still moving along at a snail's pace, you know, which is fine because we are getting into the depths uh, of St. Mark's Gospel, really plumbing the depths of these early verses. So it was very fitting. We just happened to get through on Tuesday the verses about Jesus' temptation and then his opening words as he begins his ministry in Galilee. Uh, The kingdom of God, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there's much to unpack there. And... uh, Yeah, it's been really a gift to read the scriptures closely. It's been good for me because it gives me the opportunity to sort of engage on a scholarly level, again, to engage intellectually. So I'm breaking out my commentaries and, (laughs) you know, I'm, uh, yeah, doing some some word studies, uh, some Greek word studies and, you know, reading the, the, the fathers and things like that. So... Uh, it's wonderful. Yesterday I went back and reread and shared with the guys in the Bible study a paper that I had written a couple of years ago on uh, the story of the woman with the hemorrhage, with the issue of blood, who was healed by touching Jesus' cloak in Mark 5. I wrote this very detailed exegetical paper on that, and we happen to be talking about that, even though we're not anywhere near that point yet in the gospel, <laughs> but we were talking about that scene. So I sent him the paper and it was great to just be able to go back and, yeah, re-engage with something that, I mean, I spent months studying very closely and working on. So is that, that uh, re-engagement, you know, in the intellectual life has been a gift to it the last week. And uh, anything else? I led a holy hour last night. I preached about mental prayer and the dispositions that we need to have to make progress in the life of prayer. Um... And I led a holy hour on Tuesday night, too, for our catechumens, for the RCIA. Prayed the rosary together. 
So th those have been good opportunities too. You know, I uh, I love any chance I get to to teach about prayer and the necessity, the primacy of prayer, and to lead people in contemplative prayer and adoration. So good opportunities this week, and there will be more to come in the week to come. Wow, it's really beginning to rain now. Good thing though, although I came unprepared as regards the jacket, I did think to bring a hat. <laughs> I'm not totally forgetful of the ways of my home country here in Oregon. So now, as we walk under the rainy sky, let us turn our attention to Middle Earth, to the golden woods of Lothlorien, where the sky is always clear and the air is always warm. And we can, uh, well, let's just move over there and talk about all that's happened with Frodo and the gang. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So in the last week, we have uh, come to the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And let's see, when we left last Saturday, they had just escaped from the mines of Moria. And of course, we had the iconic scene where Gandalf falls to his doom into the depths of Moria, pulled down by the Balrog's whip. And uh, since we left the company there, they have journeyed on to the woods of Lothlorien, this golden wood where uh, the, uh, a certain race or a certain band of elves live under the dominion of um, Galadriel, the Lady Galadriel, who wields one of the three elven rings that were never captured by Sauron. And, uh, that have never fallen under the sway of his evil power, so they can still be used for good. And in, in, in the woods of Lothlorien, Galadriel uses the ring which has been entrusted to her to preserve this place in a kind of eternal time out of time. And so uh, what they discover when they leave Lothlorien and continue on their journey is that much more time has passed than they would have thought possible. In fact, uh, you know, Sam comments that he, he thought only per, at most a week would have passed when they were there in Galadriel's country, but in fact a whole month has gone by and a whole cycle of the moon, right, has passed. So it's this time at a time, this place which is sort of an eddy in the stream, the ongoing current of the passing of the ages. Yet Lothlorien, it's not entirely, it's not sort of eternal. It, time passes very slowly, but nevertheless, the elves there are aware that their season is coming to an end, their age is closing. And uh, it's this place where they are also fully aware once the, the One Ring has come to Lothlorien, and they're aware of the journey, the mission of the Fellowship, that whatever the outcome of this journey, their age will be at an end. Because if the One Ring is destroyed, the power of Galadriel's Ring too will come to an end, and Lothlorien will be doomed to fade 
and to wither, and they will have to go away into the west like all the other elves. They will sail off from the Grey Havens and disappear from Middle-earth forever. On the other hand, if, of course, the One Ring is captured by Sauron, well, that will be the doom of all in Middle-earth, of all that is good, anyway, and Lothlorien will surely, uh, one time or another, will fall and be burned or trampled underfoot by orcs and servants of the Dark Power. So, whatever happens, whether the Fellowship and their mission ends in victory or defeat, they know that the end of Lothlorien is at hand. Yet we see it, we see it in its glory, and it is beautiful. This, uh, this golden wood, where the, the gold leaves of the Malorn tree fall upon the paths, and the river leaps along with a glad voice. The hobbits are glad to spend some time there. They escape from the orcs who are pursuing them out of Moria. And they receive gifts from the Lady Galadriel and her husband, uh, Celeborn, the king of Lothlorien. Among them are some boats which carry them on the river Anduin uh, on their journey down south towards Mordor. And they receive also uh, elven garments these gray cloaks which serve to disguise them, to hide them from prying eyes. And they receive the gift of lembas bread, this famous bread, which is tasteless, almost, although it, it uh, doesn't taste bad, but it is flavorless and very light, but just a morsel of it is enough to keep a traveler on his feet for a whole day, Galadriel says, even if he be a strong man. And uh, they call it the way bread, the way bread, which brings to mind for Catholic readers, of course, and Tolkien uh, knew this, it was no accident, brings to mind the viaticum, the last sacrament of the Eucharist, which is given to the sick and the dying, viaticum, and it means literally the way bread, <laughs> or the food for the journey, the last journey from life into death. But the Eucharist in general, is also our way bread. It's the food for our journey through life as we journey on um, through this period of exile towards our heavenly homeland. And so there's a, a beautiful Eucharistic symbolism there. Scholars have also made the connection between Galadriel and the Virgin Mary, which is interesting. Uh, there's much to be said there, but I'm not going to say it today. <laughs> Maybe on another occasion we'll dive into that a little bit more deeply. But the Fellowship at last departs from Lothlorien. They sail down the river Anduin to the south. Along the east bank of the river, of course, there are the, the, uh, the, the brown lands, the dry lands. No one knows. Some, some evil has happened there long ago in the past, and now they're desolate and uninhabited. And to the west bank are the northernmost reaches of the realm of Rohan. And uh, they continue sailing down Anduin, putting off the day when they have to make the decision whether to go west or east until they finally come to the end of the road, so to speak. Rauros Falls, the great waterfall, and they come between the pillars of the kings of Numenor, the, uh, the border of the realm of Gondor. There, at last, they get off the river and they make camp and uh, prepare to decide which direction they will go, whether they will make for the city of Boromir, Minas Tirith, to the west, 
where they can muster their strength for a, uh, a last offensive against Mordor, or whether they will go on to the east and attempt to breach the enemy's lands uh, unnoticed. Although that seems a hope against hope, given that Gollum has been tracking them and the orcs have been attacking them across the river all along the way. So they're deliberating which way to go, and Frodo thinks that he, he knows what he must do. He knows he must go east, but he's afraid. He doesn't want to make the decision. He's afraid of leading any of his friends into danger and what seems to be a certain doom. And as he deliberates, Boromir comes upon him uh, there in the woods overlooking Rauros Falls. And they have a confrontation which has been foreshadowed for some time, and Boromir tries to take the ring. Frodo puts it on to escape from him, and that steals his resolve, and he determines to set off at once. He knows he can no longer trust the company, and those among them whom he does trust implicitly, like Aragorn, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, well, he won't lead them into danger, so he sets off on his own. Fortunately for him, Sam predicts him, <laughs> he knows his master's mind, and he goes and meets him by the riverside as Frodo attempts to slip away unseen in a boat, wades out after him, almost drowns, Frodo saves him, and in the end the two set off together into the unknown of Mordor. And thus we come to the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Now there's more to be said, orcs come upon them, Merry and Pippin are captured and carried away. Boromir dies defending them, defending Merry and Pippin, ultimately futile, but he does, it seems, make atonement to a certain extent for his, uh, his failure, right, for his fall uh, when he betrayed Frodo and tried to steal the ring. And Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli give him a warrior's funeral and set him to, out to sail on a boat on the river Anduin out to the sea. And then those last three of the company decide to go off after Merry and Pippin in pursuit to try to rescue them from the orcs, leaving Frodo and Sam to uh, whatever fate may befall them as they set off alone, these two little halflings, into the very heart of the enemy's land. And that's the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. We come to the Two Towers, which I've just started. I've read the first chapter. Uh, and, uh, but let, let's just pause there. The theme I want to read this last portion of the fellowship through is the theme of temptation, perhaps not surprisingly, <laughs> given that we're reading this during this time of Lent. Temptation is a reality that we all face, not only in this season, but all of our lives. So how does Tolkien present the theme of temptation? What are some moments of temptation that we see in these latter chapters? First of all, before we get into the latter chapters, it's worth maybe casting our minds back to the Council of Elrond, back in Rivendell, because there's a wonderful exchange between Elrond and Gimli, which occurs uh, just before they set off on their journey. Let me see if I can pull it up here before the rain uh, makes my screen unusable. Let me try to get this up here. 
So that would be book two, chapter three. By the way, the bookmarks on the Kindle app are not particularly easy to access. I think, uh, oh, I just got a notification saying the drizzle is stopping soon. <laughs> That's good news. Okay. Oh, and indeed it is. I can already see the rain is slowing down. Thanks, Apple. All right, here we go. But the rain on the screen does make it difficult to uh, touch any of these little buttons. All right, so we're getting close here. Here we go. So Elrond is speaking to the company. He says, uh, on Frodo alone is there a charge laid. And this is the charge. The ring bearer, he says, is setting out on the quest of Mount Doom. On him alone is any charge laid, neither to cast away the ring, nor to deliver it to any servant of the enemy, nor indeed to let any handle it, save at grave need. The others go with him as free companions to help him on his way. You may tarry, or come back, or turn aside into other paths as chance allows. The further you go, the less easy will it be to withdraw. Yet no oath or bond is laid on you to go further than you will. For you do not yet know the strength of your hearts, and you cannot foresee what each may meet upon the road. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens, says Gimli. Maybe, said Elrond, but let him not vow to walk in the dark who has not seen the nightfall. Yet sworn word may strengthen quaking heart, said Gimli. Or break it, said Elrond. Look not too far ahead. Very interesting. And both make good points. <laughs> Elrond will not lay any charge upon the rest of the company. He doesn't make them swear any oaths to go with Frodo to the end. Because who can foresee the twists and turns the road may take? Now Gimli protests that... Uh, a sworn word may strengthen a quaking heart, and that's true. And uh, all the Exodus men in my group have found that to be true already. <laughs> the commitments which are made, uh, not merely in the privacy of one's own heart, but publicly uh, as part of a company, a fellowship, well, that does have the power to strengthen you in moments of temptation and moments of fear. And yet Elrond also makes a... a an excellent point and I think a more prudent stance than Gimli when he warns that sworn word may also serve to break a heart. If one finds himself unable to keep his promise and then has to live with the reality that he has forsworn himself and betrayed his fellows. And so this is the background leading up ultimately to uh, if you want, a, a climax, certainly, or the climax of the Fellowship of the Ring when Boromir attempts to steal the ring from Frodo. Now, in Lothlorien, there's a great scene where Galadriel examines all the members of the company. And she does this by means of some sort of elvish magic <laughs> where she can see into the minds of all those who are present. She can see into their very hearts. And uh, she's examining each of them in order to see whether they will be true 
to the promise that they have made, to the resolution at least they have made, to walk along with Frodo to Mordor. And this is what happens. This is what Galadriel says. This is in chapter 8. Your quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail, to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains, while all the company is true. And with that word, she held them with her eyes, and in silence looked searchingly at each of them in turn. None, save Legolas and Aragorn, could long endure her glance. Sam quickly blushed and hung his head. At length the lady, uh, at length the lady Galadriel, released them from her eyes, and she smiled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, she said. Tonight you shall sleep in peace. Then they sighed and felt suddenly weary, as those who have been questioned long and deeply, though no words have been spoken openly. Then a little while later, what did you blush for, Sam? <laughs> said Pippin. You soon broke down. Anyone would have thought you had a guilty conscience. I hope it was nothing worse than a wicked plot to steal one of my blankets. <laughs> I never thought no such thing, answered Sam, in no mood for jest. If you want to know, I felt as if I hadn't got nothing on, and I didn't like it. She seemed to be looking inside me, and asking me what I would do if she gave me the chance of flying back home to the Shire, to a nice little hole with, with a bit of garden of my own. That's funny, said Mary. Almost exactly what I felt myself. Only, only, well, I don't think I'll say any more. He ended lamely. And all of them, it seemed, had fared alike. Each had felt that he was offered a choice between a shadow full of fear that lay ahead and something that he greatly desired. Clear before his mind it lay, and to get it, he had only to turn aside from the road and leave the quest and the war against Sauron to others. And it seemed to me too, said Gimli, that my choice would remain secret and known only to myself. So what is happening there? <laughs> it's this moment when Galadriel, who has by virtue of the ring the power to see, at least to a certain extent, um, into the future, to see the, the paths that lie open before them and the way that things may go. So she is warning the company that hope remains only as long as all of them remain true to the quest. And then she offers to each one in turn through this interior dialogue, this, this dialogue of the heart, uh, a kind of a choice where it seems to them they can turn aside from the path now and gain something that they truly desire, they deeply desire. On the one hand, there's this path into darkness, which leads only into the shadow of fear, the shadow of death. And on the other hand, something which appears as a great good, which may really be a great good, you know, like Sam's house with a bit of garden, something that, that, that their hearts long for. But to get it, they will have to leave the war against Sauron to others, leave the path, turn aside, abandon the quest. So is Galadriel tempting them? Well, no, we wouldn't say that. And indeed, uh, well, Boromir says as much <laughs> uh, in the next scene. He says, uh, I do not feel too sure of this elvish lady and her purposes, but speak no evil of the Lady Galadriel, said Aragorn sternly. You know not what you say. There is in her and in this land no evil unless a man bring it hither himself. Then let him beware. 
so there's no evil in Galadriel. We'll get to that in a moment. But we wouldn't say that she is tempting the fellowship. Her aim is not to get them to turn away. Rather, she's testing them, right? She's trying them. It's not a temptation, it's a trial. And there's a, a world of difference between the two. The difference lies in the intention, principally. The tempter wants us to abandon the quest. He wants us to turn aside from what is truly required of us and to seek after some lesser good. Even, and, and there's a great lesson in this, you know, St. Ignatius would say, for the discernment of spirits, because something may really be a good. You know, we may have to choose at times between two competing goods. But then the question becomes, what am I called to? What is, what, what is, what is my vocation? <laughs> what is God calling me to do? What is required of me? What does love demand of me? So it would truly be good to go back to the Shire, to stop Ted Sandyman from cutting down all the trees, you know, and there would be justice, there's justice to be done there. And Sam's heart burns to go back when he sees through Galadriel's mirror all that is happening back home or that may be yet to come. But what does love demand? Well, although it makes him weep bitterly, he recognizes love demands that he stay with Mr. Frodo and see him through to the end of his journey as he promised to hold true to his word and to be true to his friend. So all of them in the company are faced with this choice. And we don't know what the rest saw. We don't even know what Frodo saw. Only Sam reveals his heart to us, which is very characteristic of Sam, isn't it? <laughs> He's an open book. The others are more guarded. We can guess, though, that perhaps what Boromir saw was the chance of taking the ring, placing the ring upon his own finger, gaining the power of command, and thereby setting himself against Mordor, dismantling the Dark Tower, you know, driving the orcs before him, and setting himself up as a benevolent king over all Middle-earth. This vision that he is, uh, is explaining to Frodo in their confrontation at the end of the book, that uh, he seems really to be carried away with this fantasy which has built upon itself, it's self-referential, self-propagating, built up in his own mind with no roots in reality. Perhaps the first seed of that fantasy comes from this moment of trial when Galadriel tries his heart. She sees into him and she recognizes that what he desires, what he really desires, is to take the ring of power for himself and thereby to command the forces of all the free races against Mordor to set himself up as the king. She sees that and how could she not? And yet she says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. She doesn't stop Boromir from going on with the company. And ultimately, well, we, we haven't come to the end of Lord of the Rings yet, but uh, until the story is done, we don't know. It might seem that Galadriel, Galadriel's choice here was folly. She should have stopped Boromir from going on. And yet, well, in Providence, there's always this notion of the felix culpa, isn't there? The happy fault. And God is this way with us. He allows, he allows us to make mistakes. He allows there to be even evil, uh, which plays its own role within his providential designs because it brings about a greater good. 
So Galadriel tries their hearts and allows them all to continue on their journey, hopefully now with greater self-knowledge. So they all recognize that there are things that they greatly desire, they are tempted by, and yet their resolves are strengthened to go on along the way they have chosen, not to turn aside to the left or the right, but to continue in the path, even though it seemed to lead only into darkness and despair. Galadriel herself, interestingly, is tempted by Frodo. <laughs> and she herself comments upon the sort of irony, if you want, uh, of that encounter. Let me see if I can find it here. I think it's in the very next chapter. But of course, as soon as I close the screen with all my bookmarks, it reverts back to the very beginning of the book. Let's see here. Here we go. So Frodo offers Galadriel the ring, the one ring. And uh, let me see if I can find the exact quote here. He says, you are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Galadriel. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It is too great a matter for me. Galadriel laughed with a sudden clear laugh. Wise the Lady Galadriel may be, she said, yet here she has met her match in courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart at our first meeting. You begin to see with a keen eye. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I had pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands, and behold, it was brought within my grasp. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the Dark Lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. <laughs> she lifted up her hand. And from the ring that she wore there issued a great light that illumined her alone and left all else dark. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement and beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. Then she let her hand fall and the light faded and suddenly she laughed again. And lo, she was shrunken, a slender elf woman clad in simple white whose gentle voice was soft and sad. I passed the test, she said. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. That is truly a beautiful scene. <laughs> One of the most memorable, perhaps of, of all of the Lord of the Rings, I think. And uh, it's very beautiful how it happens. Now Frodo, uh, we would also, only say tongue-in-cheek that Frodo is tempting her. He, out of a great humility of heart, looks upon her and sees her nobility, her strength, her power, her knowledge, her majesty. And he offers her the ring, he offers her the burden that has been laid upon him to bear. Not because he doesn't, well, certainly he doesn't wish to bear it, <laughs> but not because he simply wants to, to cast it aside. He's, he's shown he's willing to bear it, 
to the end. He takes seriously the charge. But as he carries it and he looks upon Galadriel and he sees the grace with which she bears the elven ring on her finger, and he sees her goodness, he thinks she would be a better custodian of the ring than I. So he offers it to her. And Galadriel gives us a glimpse of how the enemy has tempted her heart. She says, long have I desired it. And we can see that even for this noble, this noble queen of the elves, who is pure, uh, nevertheless, her heart is tempted. She would desire the ring to set herself up as queen. And yes, as, as Sam protests, she would do great things, just things. She would set things right, punish those who acted with injustice. And yet it would not stop there. She recognizes that the power were she to possess it would corrupt and she would become an evil queen, not dark, but beautiful and terrible. And so because she knows herself and she recognizes the temptation, she passes the test. She must remain Galadriel and fade and go into the West and disappear. On the other hand, we have Boromir, who does not pass the test. <laughs> and Boromir, as soon as they leave Lothlorien, for days upon the river, he's staring at Frodo and muttering to himself. The other hobbits notice he's gazing at Frodo with a kind of a look of hunger, of rapt attention. And in the end, he pursues him into the woods and they have this confrontation. And we can see how Boromir falls. He becomes wrapped up in the fantasies which uh, have, have begun in his heart, right? And because he doesn't know himself with humility, rather he regards himself with pride. We've seen the pride of Boromir many times already throughout the Fellowship of the Ring. He takes great pride in his strength, in his valor, his courage, his... Uh, that he is true to his word, you know. He has great pride in his city, in being a son of Denethor and the warden of Minas Tirith, the men of whom are strong and valiant. And uh, he, so he, he, has, he has great pride, but pride, we know, blinds us. And so the temptation comes upon him unawares. And he truly believes because he is such a great warrior, such a great man, that he could wield the ring of power and not be corrupted by it. And therefore we see his mind and his heart become twisted until in the end when he speaks to Frodo, he's saying, the ring, it might have been mine, it should have been mine, give it to me. <laughs> Much like with Gollum, who convinced himself over the years that the ring really was his birthday present, right? Even though he killed his best friend and stole it from his hand thinks, well, it really it was my present. My friend should have given it to me. After all, it was my birthday. I asked for it. It was mine. The same now happens here with Boromir. The ring, the love of the ring, twists and corrupts his heart. And we know, we know, that what he sees to be good and noble purpose, that he wants to use it to wage war on Mordor, it would not end there. He would set himself up 
as a new Sauron, as a new king on the dark throne. And so we have here these different pictures of temptation. On the one hand, we have the trial, which Galadriel subjects the company to. On the other hand, we have the temptation of Galadriel, which she passes, the test which she, uh, which she excels. And we have the temptation of Boromir, at which he falls. And we've all been subjected to all three in our own lives. There are times when the Lord tests us, you know, and uh, we may object. We may ask ourselves, well, why would God put us to the test? You know, if he loves us, why, why would he allow us to face difficulties and challenges? Well, precisely because, as we see with the company, at least one reason is that it's by virtue of being tested, being challenged, that we come to know ourselves. And St. Teresa says that uh, self-knowledge is indispensable at every stage of the spiritual life. We must eat of the bread of self-knowledge until our dying day, <laughs> you know. Self-knowledge must be our whey bread, our lembas bread, until the end of our lives. We can never do without it. It's so necessary because when we truly know our hearts, then we have humility, as Frodo does and as Galadriel also does, and as Boromir does not. And humility is a sure defense against the enemy because the enemy is proud. He doesn't understand humility. But if we're humble, we don't rely on our own strength. We rely rather on the strength of God. And the very words of Galadriel echo the words of Jesus in the gospel. There is an exact textual parallel. She says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And Jesus is the same. <laughs> do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So therein lies our strength, the strength of the humble, believing not in ourselves. In ourselves there's only weakness, <laughs> but in Christ. And if we abide with Christ, there is strength. So when we are tested, we need to not rely on our own powers, but on God. And that's the very reason he allows us to be tested. And in temptation, well, if at times we fall, there is the opportunity of repentance. There's the opportunity of making atonement for our sins. We must confess our faults and uh, go to the Lord and beg his mercy. And that's precisely the topic I wanted to talk about today in the theology segment. So let's wrap it up here and uh, get over there to theology. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. So in theology, there is a notion of atonement, which is I think, especially today, a difficult concept sometimes for modern Christians to wrap our minds around and to grasp. You know, the medievals and the church fathers, they loved the idea of atonement. And there are volumes upon volumes written on this theme. But we don't hear so much about it today in either our preaching or in theological writings the idea of atonement has become somewhat passé. And I'm speaking mostly here from the Catholic context. I'm sure that evangelicals, you know, and <laughs> other Protestant circles probably uh, focus very much on atonement. 
It's a, it's a key part of our tradition. It's key for understanding why God became incarnate in Jesus Christ. And yet, the idea has somewhat fallen out of favor because I think, and I think I, I, I have this idea from, principally from Bishop Robert Barron, who speaks about this often, that the idea of sin in the modern world has fallen out of favor. And, well, if you don't have a robust idea of sin and of the consequences of sin, then it's difficult to see why atonement of any sort would be necessary. Because atonement is precisely the act that bears away sins. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. There's this notion that sin has to be borne away. That's why, uh, for example, once a year on the Feast of the Atonement, the high priest would lay his hands upon a goat, the so-called scapegoat, and through a ritual and prayer would lay the sins of the people upon the goat and then send it out into the wilderness with the idea that through prayer and sacrifice uh, that the, the sins of the people would be borne away for another year, carried out into the wilderness where there would be no more, where they could finally be done away with and the people be rendered again clean and pure. Of course, all the symbols and the sacraments, small s, of the Old Covenant were, uh, had symbolic value only. <laughs> they didn't have real metaphysical effect. So the scapegoat didn't really bear away sins. It only served the purpose of training the hearts of the people to recognize their need for a savior, the need for one who would truly bear away sins, who would truly atone for the sins of the people. So let's consider then from the beginning, just what is sin and what are its consequences? Well, sin is a complex phenomenon. Basically, there are three parts that we have to look at. So one, the one we normally think of, the sinful deed, (laughs) the evil act, which is done. But there's also the inner disposition of the doer, right? What's the heart of the sinner? The psalmist says, sin speaks to the sinner in the depths of his heart. So what's going on on the level of the heart? And then thirdly, there are the consequences of sin. And I'm not just talking about hell, you know, and it's sort of eternal punishment for sin. But what are, what are the, if you want, the natural consequences? Like, um, you know, what, what just comes about as a result of sin? So, to understand uh, these latter two points, we have to recognize that sin takes place in the context of the covenant. God has revealed himself as a father and really as a lover. And he's called his people to live in covenant with himself as his family. And so, God is not just calling us as he's not just the divine lawgiver, you know, and even in Israel, far, far more so in the new, in the new covenant, but even in the, under the old covenant with Israel, think of the prophet Hosea, you know, where the Lord reveals the burning passion of his love for Israel. He's not simply a lawgiver. He is truly a father and he's one who is concerned about his people and who enters into relationship with them, a reciprocal relationship with uh, rights and obligations on both sides, you know? And yet, let's think of it not just as a treaty, but like in a family where the parents 
and the children each have obligations to one another and rights of um, what to expect from one another, you know, what they ought to receive and what they ought to give. And so this is the kind of relationship that God has by virtue of the covenant with his people. So sin, principally a sinful act, um, disobedience to the law, is to be understood not just as breaking a rule, but as breaking the covenant. Sin is an act uh, which separates the sinner from the covenant family of God. And thereby we can get a glimpse of the inner disposition of the heart of the sinner. Uh, the heart of the sinner is a heart which says, at, at the most fundamental level, it's not always conscious, but this is basically the disposition of all sin. It's saying, I say no to being God's covenant son or daughter. I say no, I reject that. I say yes to being my own master, to being a free individual, self-determining, you know? I stand outside of the covenant with its rights and obligations. I belong to myself, I do what I want. And there we can also see the consequences. They say sin is its own punishment, you know? So what's the punishment for that? Well, you stand on your own, outside the covenant. You're estranged from God. You are, to use a chilling word, God forsaken. Not that God ever turns his back on anyone. And this is such a key point to understanding what atonement is and how it's even possible. God is the one who perseveres in love. He suffers. He suffers the abandonment of his beloved. What do I mean? Well, when God's covenant son or daughter turns away from him and commits sin, the result is that individual has left God's covenant family. But God is the father. He remains in loving relationship with his son or daughter. He remain, his heart remains open to them. He remains, uh, he, he remains deeply, what's the word, linked to them, you know? He doesn't close his heart. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't turn aside. Thereby, he suffers. And we can truly say that God suffers the absence of his beloved. He suffers their rejection. Now, we have to be careful here, and I'll just make a theological point. <laughs> God is impassable, which means we can't say that he ever suffers anything um, unwillingly, you know. Nothing, nothing affects him from without. He doesn't allow to affect him. It's not like us. But God, precisely, he allows himself to suffer the distance between himself and the sinner. He allows himself to suffer our absence, our rejection, our abandonment, because he's entered into this relationship with us. He's invested. He's a lover, right? And to love is to put your heart at risk. And so God, we're always speaking analogically about him. It's just, you know, he doesn't have a heart exactly, but you understand what I mean when I say God's heart is grieved, it's wounded when we reject him, we turn aside from him in sin. So that's the consequence of sin, the dis distance from God, where we find ourselves in a place, in a, a kind of a solipsistic place, you know, we find ourselves drifting further and further afield. Reminds me, incidentally, of something a professor of mine once said about hell. He said we get the wrong idea about hell when we think you know it's devils poking us with pokers and in in uh, a kind of endless fire 
rather, a good image for hell is um, if you imagine you were on the International Space Station <laughs> and you go out to fix something on the wing or the whatever and uh, the cable connecting you breaks and all of a sudden you find yourself floating further and further away and you realize no one can save you and you're going to continue on drifting in an endless void until you die. Only in hell you never die. You'll just continue further and further out further and further away from all that is good and beautiful and true from the source of all love and all that you have ever loved deeper and deeper into emptiness and loneliness and despair horrible chilling image Ugh. terrifying right and uh, yet that's the reality of sin we turn aside from love and we go into the place of death now atonement atonement is first and foremost a work of God. God has the primacy of action. And we see principally, the way that God begets atonement is by remaining in relationship with the sinner and by suffering the sinner's absence. We can think about it, think about it with an illustration on the human plane. This will help us to grasp sort of what's going on here. Of course, it's an analogy. Analogies are imperfect by nature. But think of a husband and wife. They're in a covenant, a covenant of marriage. When the husband begins looking at pornography and then gradually begins talking to people online, talking to women online, and then he starts going to meet up with them, clandestine encounters, and he falls into an affair. And over time, uh, his behavior becomes more and more outrageous and obvious and at last the wife becomes aware of it. He's neglecting his duties at home and he's absent from the home and finally it all comes to the light and she begs for him to repent you know and to come back to the family to the household but his heart is hardened and he, his lust has been awakened it's too great and he won't repent so they have to separate. So. They go their separate ways, the wife with the children and the husband on his own, and for a while, he relishes his new freedom, you know, and he enjoys, uh, he enjoys his solitude. But over time, he becomes sad, and uh, he realizes his life is empty, and his heart is sick, and nothing satisfies him. So he, he goes back. You know, he turns back to the family and he, he contacts his wife and he asks to see the kids, maybe, you know. And when he contacts her, she allows him to come. And he returns to the family and, and when he's there and he's playing with the kids, he realizes that his wife has kept the flame of spousal love alive. And her heart is not closed to him. She's, her heart is not hardened. She's not cold toward him. She's not distant. She recognizes the distance that exists between them and she mourns it, she grieves, and she weeps over it. She weeps for him, she prays for him. And yet she loves him still. And by recognizing the steadfastness of the love of his wife, her fidelity to the covenant, and the way that she, in her love for him, has suffered his absence and has not turned away, it awakens in him guilt and remorse, repentance. 
contrition. And he apologizes and he resolves to make amends. And he returns to the family. You can also think about a similar situation with a father and a son. Maybe the son, you know, falls into a life of crime and he, you know, he falls in with the wrong crowd and the father has been a good and virtuous example and whatever, but, you know, the son rejects his father's good example. He turns his back on him and he's doing drugs and perhaps he becomes a burglar and he's robbing houses and finally the law catches up with him and his heart is hardened, you know, that's always an essential consequence of sin. The heart becomes hardened. And in the courtroom, you know, he won't meet his father's eyes. He won't look into the eyes of his victims. He's given a jail sentence. But his father comes to visit him. And ultimately, in his father's gaze, he realizes that the father has never rejected him. Ah, the father has been suffering in love, the absence, the rejection of his son and it awakens in the son's heart an attitude of repentance and remorse. And although the son still has to serve the sentence, it's transformed now from within, right? The, the distance that has existed, the solitude, has, the, the, the gap has been closed. And so, yeah, there's still consequences, there's still punishment, if you want to put it that way, to be worked out. But the interior reality of sin has been transformed. That's atonement. That's atonement. That's how sin is born away. And we see this with God the Father. He perseveres with us in love. He suffers our absence, our rejection, thereby hoping to engender in us a filial response, you know, a sonly or a daughterly response of love suffering whereby we will see that the Father has never abandoned us and in our hearts we will have contrition and repentance and remorse and we will feel our absence from Him to be a source of pain, to be a source of grief. Thereby, the principal consequence of sin, which is absence of God, is transformed for us into a place where all of a sudden we recognize God's love, we see the good of it, we desire it, we are pained because we're far from it, and as soon as we feel that pain, then the, the gap is closed, you see? And God is near again. And we can draw near to Him. And, and, and the Lord says, come, let us set things right. <laughs> that your sins be uh, as red as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That's the basic idea of atonement. So, but what does this have to do with Christ? Because Christ ultimately is the one who atones for the sin of all humanity, who makes the way of repentance and the freedom that God promises open to all. Well, consider, consider the words of the Lord on the cross. Eli, Eli, lema sebakthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, He says in St. John's Gospel, you know, my Father and I are one. Uh, I only do what I see the Father doing. I am never alone. My Father is always with me. So the Father has not forsaken him. So what's going on on the cross? Well, in his incarnation, God the Son has come into the very depths of humanity's God-forsakenness. Do you see that? God himself, God the Son, puts himself in the place where we, 
are absent from God. He becomes one of us. He takes on to himself the prince, all, all of humanity's sin and the principal consequence of all humanity's sin, which is the distance between us and our God. He takes it on, and on the cross, he feels it. He goes into the deepest, darkest reality of the human heart, the place where God is absent, and he cries out there with a filial, a sonly love suffering, which is engendered by and mirrors the love suffering of the Father. Why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of the heart asking, God, where are you? He knows his Father is near, but he feels in his own heart the distance which is wrought by the sin of humanity. But you see, by going into the place of sin, Jesus is not conquered. Rather, he conquers because he never loses faith. He remains the Son, the faithful Son, the one who trusts in the Father. And so the very next words that he says on the cross are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your unseen, unfelt hands, your invisible presence, I commend my spirit, all that I have and am. And he gives himself over to the Father, holding nothing back in a total act of filial self-entrustment to his Father. And as we said, that's how atonement is brought about. But this is not just individual atonement on the level of the self. This is God and man bringing about atonement for all humanity. He takes on himself the sin of all as man. And as God, he makes atonement for all to the Father. So how do we make atonement? Sin has to be transformed into sonship. The one God goes into the place of sin, the realm of sin, the house of death, and he remains there, the Son, faithful to the end. Thereby, he bears away sin. He transforms it from within. And he makes it into sonship in his own image, the image of his own heart. This is the drama that has to play out in our own lives when we sin and fall short of the glory of God and we repent. But it's made possible for us by Christ who goes before us and who within each of our souls is constantly living out the mystery of redemption and atonement. So that's just a, a bit of an excursus into Catholic theology. But guys, it's so important. I can't tell you how many people have a, who, who even think about atonement have a false notion of what this word means. You know, and it comes from Martin Luther, <laughs> ultimately, because he had this notion of the father, you know, who is angry with the son. And he, he, he's, well, he's angry with humanity, and so the son becomes sort of this scapegoat, an innocent victim on whom the father unleashes his wrath. The son stands in our place. And where, you know, you know God's like holding back his fist, like, you better watch out or you're going to get it. The son gets in front of us, and he gets pummeled by the father until the father is satisfied. And so the father becomes a kind of a celestial child abuser, you know, who can't control his anger. And that is a horrible distortion, and the devil is pleased by it because he knows as long as we think of God this way, then we're not going to trust him. We're not going to turn to him. And therefore, atonement can never really be accomplished because in the places of our sin and fear and weakness, there will never be sonship because we don't trust the father. 
So we have to have a right concept of what atonement really means. It's, it's the conversion of sin into sonship. Instead of saying no to being God's sons and daughters, we must say yes in the place of our abandonment and where we feel God forsaken. We must turn again to him who has never turned away from us and say, yes, God, I am your son. I am your daughter. I desire to be yours. Now, uh, to go back to Boromir <laughs> for a sec, um, <laughs> what we see with him is kind of a limited image of atonement. He does confess his wrong to Aragorn. And he tries to make up for it, right? And he, he gives his life defending the hobbits, you know. And they give him a hero's funeral. So that's the best kind of atonement we can hope for, you know, in a, in a, in a pagan world, right? And Middle-earth is a pagan world. <laughs> I mean, for all the Christian themes and imagery, you know, it's not our own world. Uh, the, the incarnation hasn't happened there, you know. So that's kind of the best we can hope for. You confess your sins, you hope that you're forgiven, and you do your best to make up for it and to set right the, the wrongs that have come about through your actions. But in Christ, something greater is offered to us. In Christ, there's the possibility that sin will truly be borne away, not just made up for, not just, you know, um, <laughs> forgotten about or something, but truly transformed from within, borne away blotted out, made white as snow, and that we can again be sons and daughters of the father whom we rejected because like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he's never given up on us. He waits by the door day after day to hear our footfall upon the road. And as soon as he catches sight of us in the distance, he runs out to meet us and to embrace us and to restore us to the family. So my friends, we've come to the end of another In Your Embrace podcast. And uh, we've come to the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Next week, we'll be talking about the first third or so of the two towers. So I'm looking forward to that. We'll be another week into Lent <laughs> this season, which uh, continues on apace as we march toward Easter. I pray that you will continue to persevere in your good resolutions. That the Lord will bless you with contrition of heart, with true repentance, and that you will receive from him the graces which he merited for you on the cross, the restoration to God's family, and the joy, the delight of belonging to this family, of being sons and daughters of so great a father. And so now, this weekend and all this week, friends, may God bless you. May he protect you from all evil, and may he bring you to everlasting life. Amen. A heart that is broken and humble, God will not despise. Do good, O Lord, and like it pleasure unto Zion. And let the walls of Jerusalem be builded. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with oblation and Robert offering. Then shall I offer bullocks upon thy home.